1990s, a new form of dance music began to emerge out of the UK, combining elements of hip-hop, electronica, down-tempo beats, and spoken word samples. Trip-hop was something different that needed a totally new classification. It was hard to find the right spot to place this new sound within the confines of existing genres at the time. Massive Attack and Tricky, once a member of Massive Attack, along with DJ Shadow in the US, ushered in this new sound. The group that really brought the genre to the American mainstream, though, was Portishead. Their debut album, Dummy, was an intoxicating mix of hip-hop beats, record scratches, string arrangements, deep bass tracks, and haunting vocals. The sound was the antithesis of the three- and four-piece grunge bands that dominated the early 90s. It wasn't really dance music. It wasn't hip-hop. It was too slow to be dance music. It got lumped in with alternative, but that was most likely because the record companies didn't know what else to put where else to put it. This was new and it caught on with a large audience somehow. To this day, there are still very few bands to compare Porter's Head with. Frankly, I love that. Today on Hidden Jukebox, Sour Times from Porter's Head's nineteen ninety four debut album, Dummy. Um so Couple, couple of observations. First of all, you mentioned Tricky, and uh, that got me thinking. Like, do you think anyone has ever picked up a cool nickname or like one word name like Tricky after age forty? And I saw that you put this note, and that made me wonder to myself: Is the point of this that Tricky was over forty when he joined no, no, Massive no. Attack? Not at all. It's that we okay. are. No. Okay, <laughs> I'm like, man, Tricky no. was looking good for his age. Yeah, he was 75. <laughs> um, no, my my point is that like every everyone who has a cool nickname like that is a young person or was a young person at the time they got the nickname. But could we be the first to like break the mold? Maybe we've already discussed this on the show. Okay, but I've always wondered how people pull off getting nicknames like this, like. People call us Jamster and Mamster sometimes. All the time. <laughs> but but when I was like in my 20s, I tried to get people to start doing that personally, like like going to people and be like, you know, you can call me Jamster. And people's response was, no, I'm definitely, definitely not going to do that. No, you can't do it yourself. Although I feel like maybe Tricky did. I have no, no knowledge of this one way or another. When I was in a uh, like my first Seattle band, Catfish Lint Trap, I for a while my bandmates and no one else would call me Radioactive <laughs> because I had blue hair. And one time I electrocuted myself on stage. <laughs> Which has nothing to do with radioactivity whatsoever. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, what what's what's the name of the two guys from Insane Clown Posse? Violent J and Shaggy Two Dope. Okay, so perfect examples. Like like, was it high school when people were like, "Oh, Shaggy Two Dope, what's up? How you doing?" Mm-hmm. I think so. Well, yeah. Wow, that's a good question. Because like in in like the hip hop world, you can come up with your own nickname. I think like not every that's not how everyone gets their name, but I think a majority do. Speaking of which, yeah. and and we're getting way off topic at the very beginning here, but <laughs> uh, I've started watching Dave on FX, which is you. I think you told I, me about this. No, because okay. I started since the someone last. Someone told me about this, and I had to make them explain several times that it wasn't the Kevin Klein movie where he's the president. No. Okay. Um, it, I hate the term meta, but this is as meta as meta gets. As meta as you can get. A yeah, perfect, perfect. Uh, he is an actual rap star in in real life. Oh, I did hear about Little this. Dicky. 
Uh, he raps about his little dick. Okay. He is a white Jewish guy, and he basically scraped his way to the top uh, by, you know, social media and sure. just getting himself out there. And then the show is autobi- semi-autobiographical and follows this story that was his real life story, basically. And he was the one who picked his name, Little Dicky. So moral of the story is he's got to be in his 30s and you can come up with a mononym like Tricky or or Dicky or right. Dicky and get people to call you that. All right. I like it. Yeah. Tricky, Tricky and Little Dicky can go on the Tricky Dick tour. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we did Massive Attack's Mezzanine during the Laura Lowe era of Shout the show. out to Laura Lowe. Um, I, this is like a whole area of music that I know very little about. Like dance music in general and anything involving a fusion of dance music with anything else. I had never listened to Massive Attack Mezzanine prior to you guys doing that episode. And it it is hard to classify it. Yeah. It, it, but... It, even even uh, Dummy by Portishead, they get lumped into the same category, but I don't really hear them and go very, very similar. So here's what I kind of hear going on there. And like, I'm going to say a lot of dumb things on this episode because, like I said, this is something I know very little about. For a but change. I, I feel like what defines this particular genre to me is like it's, uh, you know, down tempo. It's using like very like compressed samples that have that often have like like a gated electronic snare sound, like a real like like hissy thick kind of snare sound, and then you fuse that with some hooky vocal lines, and this is music that can work instrumentally or vocally, right? Yes, um, and it's weird because I I was thinking about this last night and I wrote down this note late last night. That when this first came out, I felt like it was over my head that I didn't sure. get it. Uh, and thinking about that now seems ridiculous because like f- trying to think about it like music has to be understandable in any way to get it doesn't make sense because most people aren't musicians like most people don't get music. It's, sure. ju- it's just do you hear it and like it or do you not like it? And and this feels like music like you're supposed to be in some sort of club like getting something and i remember back in the 90s thinking that there was just too much going on and and too many different things that i didn't understand uh and so i remember it as being very lush sounding and listening back to this song and this whole album it's the clear opposite it's very sparse but i i think it's lush in a way when strings when the come strings in, come in, you're absolutely right. Yes, yes, but but when you when I listen back to this whole album, I'm like, yeah, you know, the strings are really prevalent, and they're not. There there yeah, are multiple tracks point. that don't have any strings at all. A lot of it is just bass, drums, DJ, and vocals, yeah. and that's it. I mean, this band is really just a trio that would bring in 
what they needed in order to create the sound that that they wanted. Yeah, and like these are these are like really strong pop songs overall. Like I, you know, when we did Massive Attack, I remember asking Laura like there are parts of this that I like, but overall I feel like my question is like which drugs do I need to take in order to understand this? <laughs> right. I don't feel that way about Portishead. I think they they are a pop band that has like fused like a pop sensibility with with this particular style of dance music. Right. Like would this would this work as something in in pop music without the vocals? It's not really dance music. Like if this song came on without vocals at a club, would you be like, well, time to hit the floor? Uh, no, because I wouldn't be at, at a club. <laughs> right. But if you were that type of person, yeah. it, it's like it's not really danceable. It's almost slow dance. True. And so I imagine when I listen to this, I, you know, all of my experience of clubs is movies and TV shows. And I feel like Portishead is designed to be like the soundtrack for the scene in the movie where someone is either having a bad trip or like they just broke up with someone and everyone else at the party is having a great time and they're just kind of staggering through in a, in a haze. Totally. Slow motion, right? Well, well and, and really like their whole sound seems to be like cinema, yes. cinematic type of... of you know, conjures up images in your head music. That is okay. So that raises a really good question because that's definitely true. Like when you hear uh, this song, Sour Times in particular, like, you know, it definitely has like a James Bond theme quality to it, partly because it samples from a film soundtrack, right? Yes. Um, and they, they, the band even made like a short film, like a like a kind of uh, parody spy movie, and and did a soundtrack for it as like a promotional thing, and then used that part of that for the video for this song, which is very entertaining. But when we say that that a song or or like a an album sounds cinematic, what are the elements that make it sound that way? Because I c- agree with you a hundred percent. Okay, what is it that we're keying in on? Well, first off. Uh, I read something that said that the guitarist of this band really, really liked the guitar style in Ennio Morricone, like oh, yeah. spaghetti western. I can absolutely style hear that. Somehow, even though I I grew up a musician and really am over analytical when I listen to music, that just never clicked into my head. In my head, and the second that I read it, I'm like. Oh, my God. Yes. So there's this element to the guitar that is like he's not really soloing. He's not creating these singable melodies. He's creating more of like a feeling with mm-hmm. it. And I I think that that encompasses everything going on here is that they're it's like they're not trying to write a pop song with verse, chorus, verse, and they're not trying to write a dance hit. They're trying to write something with a feeling. And I think cinematic music in general is trying to create an overall feel rather than people who are in a band write a song, we're going to write a song. Yeah, you're right. No, the, the guitar is used very sparsely um, as kind of like a you know flavor texture element. Um, but the song does have a verse chorus structure that's pretty simple. It does, but then you listen to other songs on right. this album and they don't always do that. I think that's why the the label picked this as a single is it's like, well, there's something that can be latched onto here. Oh yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. Like this song has a huge recognizable hook. Like so much so like, you know, uh, Let's let's get into the title of the song because I don't think the title of the song appears in the lyrics. It does. It once, does. Okay. Once. Um, but 
I think if you played this for, I think most people who know this song probably don't know what the title is. We, I was just over at our mother's place. Shout out to mom. Uh, and I told her what we were doing today and she said, I don't know that song. And I said, yes, you do. You just don't realize that you know it. Right. I had the same conversation with my wife. Yeah. Um, and said we're doing sour times. She's like, "What is that?" I said, "You know, it's that nobody loves me song." She said, "Oh yeah, that oh, yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I know, I right. know that one." So that got me thinking. Like this, is, there are not a whole lot of songs like that that I could think of where it's not just that the that the title doesn't come to mind, that isn't prominent in the lyrics, but that some other phrase is so prominent in the hook of the song that you that people think that's the title. So one that came to mind was Baba O'Reilly, that everyone thinks is called Teenage Wasteland, right? Yep, yep. Uh, I I've got one here. I've got. I, uh, we we talked about this a little bit with Possum Kingdom that definitely doesn't say Possum Kingdom in that song. Okay, I got it. Okay. Hair of the Dog by Nazareth. Uh, do I know this? Okay. Now you're messing with a, a son of a bitch. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I always you're thought right. it was called Now You're Messing With a Son of a Bitch. Yes. The, the other one I, I thought it was uh, The Weight, which of course as a kid I always thought was ta- called Take, take a, a Load Off Fanny. Right. Take a Load of Fanny. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so they have done three albums mm-hmm. in 27 years. Yeah. They're not broken up. I got to see them in 2011 on the tour for their third album, which coincidentally was called Third. Okay. And they had like a 10-piece band up there. Uh, We mentioned the strings. There are no strings on this song. It feels like there are strings on this song. If you think about it, you go... Yeah, no, there's definitely strings in there. So what's playing that harmony part? The symbolom. No, but the symbolom is a... Then, yes. But there's something underneath that that's playing chords. Really? Okay. Guitar. There, As far as I can tell, there are no strings on this. The symbolom is like a large... Hammer dulcimer. Yes, I never heard that term, but I do know what a hammer dulcimer is because every time I go to Dusty Strings Music Store in Fremont, Seattle, I play one. They're so fun. They're so fun to play. Because you don't you can learn how to play melodies and make it sound really good, but you can also make it sound really interesting without having any sort of experience with it whatsoever. Yeah. So uh I honestly didn't look up whether the symbolom part on this is sampled from something or whether it's something that's played. So it is sampled because I listened to the song that uh, the the biggest sample in this song comes from, which is called uh, I think it's called Danube Incident by uh, Lalo Schifrin. Um and it's from it's it's from the Mission Impossible. I think it's part. It's from the show, okay. Because um, he wrote Lalo Schifrin wrote the Mission Impossible theme song, and so uh, like on the Mission Impossible soundtrack album, there's this song. And as soon as you play, you'll, you're like, okay, like you know, the the main the main like uh, you know intro melody from uh, from this song comes from Danube Incident, uh, including the the jangly cymbal on part. Well. They did not have a Cymbalom player on stage, but they had a DJ and they had somebody doing samples and they had a string section and it was such an impressive performance because they they use a lot of sampling and production in the studio and it's really only three of them and then hiring musicians. Mm -hmm. And my whole thought going into the concert was, how do they recreate this live? And they did a really incredible job with it. And we've definitely talked many times on this show about uh, 
singers staying within their range. And sure. Beth Gibbons is really good at that, where she created a sound that when she's 60, 70 years old, will probably still be able to sing these parts. Yeah, I think you're right. And so she sounded excellent. And I, I mean, I don't know. She was probably in her 40s yeah. when I saw her and and just nailed all of the parts. And, and it, it created a mood like... You know, I like to go to concerts and dance. I like to go to concerts and, and sway. Sway. This was one of those concerts where it was standing room only and everybody is standing during the songs doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> sure. it, it is like we have turned into zombies and then the song would end and everybody would cheer like they had just watched the moon landing. Um, where did they play? What kind of venue? Uh, the Wamu Theater, which is okay. probably my least favorite yeah, room in this entire great. city. It's a cement box, which is also why I was like, well, this could be really bad because they're such a sound band that you can't put them in a room with bad sound because it's going to ruin everything. And they sounded so good in there. You can't put Portishead in a box. Don't put Portishead in a box. I saw Primus in that room and it was some of the worst sound I've ever heard at a show in my life. Oh, that's too bad. Um, I'm trying to think of the last show that I went to. I mean, the last show that I went to period, but the last show that I went to where everyone was just kind of like standing. Uh, It was, uh, it was definitely the clientele. Do you know oh, the clientele? Yes, I do know the clientele. I, I, I love the clientele, but like it's not it's not a band that you like lose your shit to. <laughs> I I could I could definitely uh see standing around but also cheering afterwards. Yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting that interests me about Portishead, and like I wonder like how this works kind of is um, you know, we did Pulp last time, which is a band that took years and years to like figure out their sound, like decide on a lineup, and then get a hit record. And that's one way to do it. And then there's like Portishead or Arcade Fire that like, you know, they haven't even been playing that long, uh, let alone playing together. And, you know, within like a few years, they come out with like a massive hit album, but not just a hit album, but an album that like, you know, they, they are like fully formed, like right out of the gate. So I think that bands who have hit debut albums are the ones who really have their sound from the get go. So. I think there's a lot of examples of bands, especially in the 90s, where it was like grunge was so prevalent that like, you know, Pearl Jam knew Pearl Jam's song sound right out of the gate. What interests me is bands that either consistently recreate their sound yep. and uh, and stay consistently popular with it or don't find popularity until they find a sound after many years that they've not done before. And everyone goes, now this I like, like what's an example of that. That one's hard to think of an example of, but what the other one, I think of like Beck where Beck does so many different things. Yeah, sure. Like puts, puts out an album. Like uh, what's the album that, that golden age is off of. I don't know. (laughs) I don't remember. It, It was his acoustic album. And it was like, Oh, Beck's going to get rid of the band and pull out an acoustic guitar after he's made two dance albums. Right. And it really um, worked. Morning phase. No, that was the more recent. <laughs> yeah. One. Um, no, you're right. Uh, you know, an example of the other thing you said, I think, is is uh, that we talked about on the show is is Blur and Song 2. And like, you know, Blur was already, already obviously huge in the UK, but not in the US. And then became, you know, got a huge hit in the U.S. with a song a little outside their usual genre. Sea Change was the name of that album. Thank you. Um, 
Exactly. So, so there's, there's something about a band finding that, but, but with a band like Portishead, it's not just that they had their sound from the get go, but it's that they never went away from it that I really, really dig. And, and I love it when a band can create a sound that is so distinct that you hear it and you go, I've never heard this song, but I know exactly who this is. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think I've listened to either of the other Portishead albums. Are they They're kind of the great. same? Great. They're great, but if I was to recommend one Portishead recording to anybody, it would be Live at Roseland, New York City, which came out okay. in 1998 and is a perform one of the first performances they ever did with a full string section at the Roseland in New York City, uh, and it's phenomenal. They have stuff off of their first two albums, and it really captures how great they are live. Like they're just very, very impressive at putting together a like a specific sound that they're going for. Yeah, that's really cool. I would feel I've never worked with a string section. I would feel like such a poser. And I would feel like all these like actual musicians would be laughing at me the whole time. Like I, I I recently wrote like my first song that has like a string arrangement and like the idea of like getting actual string players to play like those four notes that I wrote just fills me with existential dread. So (laughs) I happen to be friends with a guy in Seattle named Andrew Jocelyn he and I met because a random guitar player whose name I honestly don't even remember anymore <laughs> okay. uh, was trying to put together a band and wanted it to be really eclectic. So he hired me on bass, Andrew on uh, violin. He wanted only a conga player, not a drummer. This whole th- idea fell flat on its face. But in the process, I met Andrew, um, who was in a little band at the time called Handful Lovin', <laughs> who, who were really great. And Andrew has become the go-to guy in this city if you are going to hire a string arranger. Cool. It's incredible who he's worked with. I, I ran into him at one point, and he's like, oh, I'm leaving tomorrow for tour with Dave Bazan from okay. Minus the yeah. Bear because Dave put out a solo album and wanted a string section. Um, Duff McKagan put out a solo album and hired Andrew to do his string parts. He toured with uh, a, I, I'm blanking on her name, a really famous female, like, like adult contemporary singer songwriter. Give, give Alison Krauss. No, 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 no. Like somebody more like Tammy Wynette. Tammy Wynette. Uh, Oh, here's here's his portfolio. But he is the perfect guy for if you're writing music and you go, boy, I'd love to put strings over this, but I have no idea where you even begin. You call Andrew and he can fit something to just about any anything that you write. Yeah, no, that that sounds cool. Like the scenario I'm more imagining is like, you know, I'm I'm like Billy Corgan or whoever. Billy Corgan's a bad example because Billy Corgan like 
you know, thinks Billy Corgan is the greatest thing ever. Right. But, but like, you know, I, I want like, you know, a string part for, for my, uh, for my pop song, my rock song. And like, I get like a bunch of actual like orchestra people like in the studio with me. And I'm supposed to tell them, you know, like, that's not quite what I had in mind. <laughs> like, you know, I can't tell these people anything. I also, this is never going to come up. Right, right. <laughs> but I'm going to have a nightmare about it tonight anyway. Ah, it's going to drive me nuts that I can't think of her name, but the idiot that I am, the real reason that Andrew got put on the map was because he did all the strings for Macklemore's The Heist okay, and, sure. and did two years of touring with him. Awesome. Yeah. So there's people out there to do these things for you. Okay. Um, what's great about Porter's Head is going back to them wanting a, a certain sound. I don't think they were writing songs and going, well, uh, let's see what the label wants to do. I think they were saying this song needs strings and we're putting it in. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, one, the one other thing I want to talk about that we haven't really, that we've kind of glossed over here, but haven't really talked about is the DJ scratches. Oh, okay. And there, there was another thing I wanted to bring up also, but the, the DJ scratches, what does that mean? So usually when you say I've got a DJ in my band, it can mean any number of things. I was kind of going to ask you about this, but I didn't want to sound even dumber. But like, what does the DJ do at I a Portis head I show? I feel like they hired a guy who only does record scratches. Oh, it's my dream job. It's it's incredible. And he's very rhythmic. And it's like one of the only times that I can think of outside of hip hop music where, where if it was missing from the songs they would not be the same. Like it adds a ton to the sound because it's being inserted into these kind of empty spaces in the song. Cool. It's sparse. It, it really, really works and they're using it tastefully where it's not like, okay, come on. Like this is a little bit over the top. You don't need the record scratched in there. You kind of do. Yeah, absolutely. I remember vividly, like during the like raising hell electric boogaloo, you know, Herbie Hancock rocket sort of sort of 1984 era, uh, when I first heard record scratching and I was like, like, I didn't know what cool was before that. And like, now I know what cool is like. It was so far beyond anything I'd ever experienced before. Just like, I can't believe you can do this. That that goes back to me saying Sometimes there's music that you get and sometimes there's music that you don't get. And, yeah. and this was like like the record scratches were part of me going, I'm not sure I get what Portishead is doing. But like as I got older and as I would go back and listen to these things, I'm like, I don't know who it was who made this decision, but I get it and it works. Yeah. Um, one thing that you mentioned that I wanted to talk about is influences, that uh, that it's kind of hard to, to say, like, who inspired Portishead and who Portishead inspired. So I, like, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there thinking about that. Like, I think you can definitely hear the influence of Nina Simone, and it, particularly I put a spell on you in this song. I think that it's easy to – not easy, but, like, that you can certainly – in terms of Beth's voice, pick out her influences. It's not just that, though, in this case. Like, I think if you listen to, like, the chord progression of that song and, you know, some things about the arrangement, like, you know, it is, it's not, like, the same, you know, like, like 
you know, canned drums type of sound, of course, but there's, there's more to it than just the vocals. Okay. Um, the other thing that came to mind is the Velvet Underground and Nico in the sense of, you know, the, the you know, strong, the, the particular like moody, like atmospheric female vocals, but also the idea of taking, taking a band that like is really good at producing textures and saying, we're going to, you know, put this female singer, uh, you know, fuse this female singer along with that and produce something magical. So, in, yeah, in terms of idea of what they're doing and what they're trying to put together, I think you can find the influences. In terms of sound, they're, they were very unique at the time. Like I yeah. said, I, I don't listen to Massive Attack and go, well, Massive Attack came before them and they were clearly trying to do a Massive Attack style thing. Massive Attack seems to be much more programmed drums, mm-hmm. much more hip hop influence than this. And, and, you know, especially with Tricky in there, like... It, it's just a different sound from this. Yeah. They don't use guest vocals ever in Portishead. It's it's Beth's yeah. voice. That like, like I said, you listen to all three albums. I think third came out something like 14 years after the previous album, and it's like they didn't miss a beat. I mean, that one hit Massive Attack song is pretty Portishead-y. The one, the one that was the house theme song. I cannot remember the name of the song. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah, somewhat. Okay. When they would use a female vocalist, yeah. I, I yeah, okay. was basically like, "Yeah, I can hear this." Um, and also, I think I think there is a clear Portishead influence on your favorite musician, Lana Del Rey. I don't get it. <laughs> get, getting back to things I don't get, I just don't get it. I I wish I did. I want to like her so much. It's not like I hear it, I go, "Oh my god, please change this right now." It's not like Smash Mouth mm-hmm. or anything, but I don't hear it and go, "I see why people absolutely love her." I just don't hear enough that that it makes me that it catches me. Yeah, all I want to do is get high by the beach. I mean, that's unrelated, but yeah. yes. Uh I've got a few recommendations for people. Okay. Um one of them is uh <laughs> If you've heard it, you know, Wet Leg. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm excited, they, I guess. They <laughs> They only have two songs, as far as I know so far, and they're they admit that they're kind of a joke band, like they're writing songs that are supposed to be funny, like their first song is called Chaise Longue, okay, which is yeah. French for Chaise it's, it's Lounge. It's weird that a band called Wet Leg would be writing funny songs. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hysterical, and and yet it's not like Tenacious D, where you're like clearly supposed to be funny you hear it and it's great songwriting and then you start paying attention to the lyrics and you're like um okay this is really funny and then uh there is a new duo called bachelor oh bachelor i know they're great so they're uh two people it's, it's jason jason and, and palehound right um two female performers who have their own projects who came together to do this and their first album is fantastic yeah the lyrics are pretty heavy um and the one other thing that i've been listening to incessantly because of my friend john mclennan which i know i'm way behind here but king gizzard and the lizard wizard sure uh it i've been afraid to take the deep dive because they have put out 21 albums in 11 years and that's not a joke so i'm like i don't even know where to start but it's amazing because it's like every album is a concept album. Yeah. So you can go. I, I have not really dived in either. It, it's but amazing I because, should. because 
if you said to me, okay, well, where should I start? I'd be like, I don't know what kind of mood are you in today because this album's a rock album. This album's kind of cinematic. This album's soft and slow. They do a little bit of everything and they are fantastic. Okay. Um, I got a couple of things also. Um, speaking of uh, of things with funny names, um, the uh, there's a new Guided by Voices album, as there always is, and right. uh, it's it's pretty good, but I think it's my favorite ever of Guided by Voices album title, uh, which is, it's not them, it couldn't be them, it is them. <laughs> Uh, and then my, I was mentioning to uh, my kid that uh, it seems like there's just a lot of really good punk rock happening lately. And, uh, and they were like, okay, make me a playlist. So I made a playlist on Spotify. It's got songs from uh, Touche Amore, Destroy Boys, Mom Jeans, Joyce Manor, Turnstile, More Family Band, Wednesday, The Linda Lindas, Audio Karate, Catbite, Cloud Nothings, Heart Attack Man, and Sincere Engineer. Uh, I will put a link in the show notes. Um, so I've heard of Cloud Nothing. So apparently I have 13 other bands to check out this month. This is also really good stuff. Yeah, the, the new Mom Jean single, I think, is just like a perfect little pop song. It's great. Yeah. Um, I, I've been I've been getting back into punk music because my girlfriend, Lori, loves old punk and and that 90s punk revival type of stuff. So we've been listening to it a ton lately. And it doesn't change much, but it nope. also doesn't get old. I know. Uh, just it's just like pure joy for me. Yeah. Um, I I had a conversation with someone at work recently uh, uh, who asked. She was like, uh, Matthew, you like music. Like, what's something good to listen to at work that won't be too distracting? And I'm like, I cannot help with this because I almost always listen to punk rock when I'm working. I love when somebody says to me, Jake, you like music. I, I always <laughs> yeah, want to go. Yeah, right. Does this mean that you don't? <laughs> I there there are people. I know. I've met yeah. them, and I'm always like, that's very very odd. But who am I to tell you what what to like and what not to like? All right, Jake, take us out. Okay, uh, you can find us on the web at www.hiddenjukebox.com, facebook.com slash hiddenjukebox, instagram.com slash jukeboxhidden, on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Uh, leave us a note, uh, tell people about us, like us on Facebook, and until next time, I'm Jake Amster. And I'm Matthew Amster-Burton. <laughs>